Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 89 with Joseph Makos and Joseph Bievin. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? Some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. So, <laughs> here we are. We are. We are definitely here on a rainy day. Alone again. <laughs> no one joined us. It's all right. We have, we have scheduled more interviews this week with other people, so it's fine. We have plenty of guests coming up, so hopefully uh, this is a rarity. But, yet, yeah, here we are, here we are. So we were, you know, kind of thinking about what we could talk about today. <laughs> And you, uh, you mentioned this idea of illusions in poetry. Yeah. With an A, which is always, it's hard to distinguish between illusion, I- and, illusion, illusion. and illusion unless you're really being careful with your vowel pronunciation, which I think we usually are not, right? Right. Um, but yeah, illusions in poetry, right? Which... Are not as common as you think they are. Well, I mean... Yeah, well, maybe not as common as you think they are. Or, or I think they're common... Over the course of, you know, different genres and of poetry. But I think we can probably say... Poetry kind of goes through these cycles of... Illusions being really popular in poetry. And then you go through these periods where people almost avoid them. I mean, it dates your work, right? Kind of? Somewhat? I mean, I think it depends on what your illusions are, right? If they're something specific to your time period, it certainly dates your work. Well, uh, if somebody wrote, if you wrote a, if you wrote a poem now and it was like, you know, like, ode on a Roman wicker basket. Maybe not, though, depending on how you did it. Because something like that, when you make classical references, and, and we'll see that that was a pretty popular thing, that got so ingrained into literature that it almost became timeless, right? I mean, we still have people writing classical stuff all the time, but I think people do it in a little different way now, and they incorporate something personal and modern to kind of, like, complement it or or make it seem less stiff, right? But I think it still happens. But if you're making an allusion to, like... Pop culture something more current yeah in pop culture that probably dates your work to some extent but yeah even even just the interest of the time right like you think of like but it makes it but it makes it also at the time it makes it potentially more powerful because yeah, yeah. because you know if you're if you're relating it to something that's going on like right then in the news cycle which is like you know is is real kind of like on the nose and heavy then or like, or like immediate, then, you know, it can, it sort of locks itself in time, but it also makes it, in our hypersensitive media culture in today's, you know, how we are today, super hypersensitive, you know, that it could, it could be something that's a flash in time, a moment in time, you know, you can make an illusion. Yeah. And you're taking a risk, right? It's like, you don't know what's going to last. Well, right. Like you might make an illusion to something. Let's start this whole episode out with a tangent. Yeah. Don't you think that kind of, in a certain sense, memes are, can be illusionary? They certainly are. Well, some of them are, right? Certain types of memes are. Certain types of memes are. 
But sometimes, but I think memes are a funny example, right? Certain types of memes are, but a lot of them are almost Ouroboros because they're like memes referencing memes, right? True. Like they're <laughs> circular. <laughs> Seems like what a lot of memes are, but yeah, certain things are are referencing specific points in time. But that's an interesting example, right? Like if you think about like memes, some memes last. Right, they still make sense later on, but some don't because everyone has forgotten what the reference was a week later. Right? Yeah. But it's kind of you're making a bet, and I think poems do the same thing. You're you're sort of if you're making a current illusion, making a bet on whether you think that's gonna stick around, or you just don't care, right? But you know, like some things you know, like, well, you never really know. Some things you think are like a major news story or something people are still going to be thinking about 25 years from now, but maybe they're not. And then I think sometimes people write something kind of minor just because it's someone they're interested in and think That'd like, oh, cool. whatever. But And then that person ends up being really someone that people are fascinated for with centuries later. And then that poem is interesting because of that, right? It's sort of a gamble that you're making. Well, I mean, yeah, I suppose because because yeah, you don't know, right? You don't know. Um, sometimes the poem actually seeks to preserve the illusion, you know, because it's yeah, a secondary it or tertiary right? sort of connective tissue to the body of the illusion. It's 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 a it's a it's a piece that comes sort of tied together with it. I suppose, you know. Like, but let's get but in- like it's weird. Like if you think of yeah. like famous people in time that there were poems about. There's some Charlie Chaplin poems. That makes sense. Yep. Those stick around. You probably could predict Charlie Chaplin would be a pretty big figure in pop culture, right? You, that he would stick around. Yep. I can't think of a single Elvis poem from like the time when Elvis is making music. I mean, I can think of maybe some later, like... Wow, an Elvis poem. But you'd think, right? Like, that would be someone... That there would be a lot of poetry written about? Well, that someone would pick up and, you know, pick up on that that phenomenon of pop culture. Or there's not, like... I mean, there probably are now, but there's not, like, Beatles poems from the 60s. <laughs> Well, I think the Beatles, it becomes the body of work that's looked at as, I mean, it's music, but it's also poetic. No, but I do think it has something to do with, like, the way the poetry is going at the time. I don't know that maybe that's not, like, pop culture was not necessarily, that was like a period where it was not so much of a thing you were referencing in poetry, right? Ah, interesting. I don't know. Yeah, I can't think of, I can't, in my mind, I can't think necessarily of any poem that's like oh yeah don't you remember that that beatles poem by um you know (laughs) well it doesn't have to be that obvious right it could be referencing something and i actually think like probably more in modern poetry i there are beatle references in poems but not from that time right which is interesting it's the way the new gen picks up on the old references and but that's also because right now pop culture references in poems are something well, that uh, is embraced, right? I think there's lots of like references of music and poetry right now. But at this point, it's commodity. It's commodified, you know? 
Well, certainly that can sometimes be what it is, or sometimes it's... I mean, that can be a strategy to commodify something for sure. Um, but there's probably other things that could be going. So, I don't know. Maybe we need to... We need to we're back up. Made it back up a little bit here, yeah. <laughs> and we have a poem for you. Okay, so you, so, so you were saying... When you were thinking about this idea of illusions, you were thinking about like classical illusions, yes. illusions to classical mythology and literature and, and all of those great yeah. Greek and Roman things, which used to be a really big part of literature, right? And I still think it's hard to read a lot of things without having some passing knowledge of those because of how often those references turn up. But... There, it, but it's but it's funny to think about how it kind of ebbs and wanes. That classical references are really popular, and then they disappear, and then they become popular again, and then they disappear. And we can say the same with like biblical references and things too. Well, yeah, I mean, it's 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 the basis. You know, I think I think we're going through an upheaval right now with this. You know, and I think that it's being looked at in a, in a different way, where it's like you know, it's like a bird. This is like a sort of like burn your idols kind of time period that we're living in right now, you know? Sure. It's like we're burning our idols in real time right now. But um, I think, I think like, uh, I think like there's, we can have like what? We can have like religious references to religious texts. We can have references to Roman and mythological. So there's like mythological structures and then there's like religious structures so then there's like the, so there's like the base, so basically like the dominant structure in American literature, I would say like from, from, you know, I mean, you know, so we have like a Christian structure, you know, we have a, we have the, the mythological, um, structure is what myth, mythology is. And then you have like this sort of like Christian structure, but then you have like a classical structure. But it's interesting that with the classical stuff, right? Because for both, but now we have a new one. But in England, so we have a bunch of new ones. And then again, when it happened in the U.S., I think a lot of like England was really big on the classical references because they were trying to build this narrative of their civilization being a continuation of these great civilizations, right? Although, which is really bizarre, right? In some ways, because what the hell? Does England really have to do with Greece and Rome, right? I mean, they were part of of the Roman Empire, but they were this backwoods part of it. Totally. Right? But but it's about building this narrative of what you think culture is to some extent and how and how that's built up. And then America was maybe doing a little bit of a different thing, but it was also like worried about being separated from the literary tradition that it built up, and so people look grasped onto that too. So that's certainly part of it. But then also, there's just this part of all this great literature based in that culture. And if you're someone who loves literature, you're maybe not doing that consciously, but but you're you're latching onto those things too. I don't know. It's a funny thing. It is a funny thing. Well, we can certainly talk about older stuff, but you were talking about, like, the romantics. Yep. And they definitely loved their classical references. 
But I would say they kind of like filtered it. But of course, like whenever you make these illusions, you filter it through the lens of the kind of thing that you're trying to do, right? Yeah. So who we got here? Who's 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 a Keats? I think kind of bakes the cake, you know. When it's no, I think Keats is uh, his is great. I really, I actually think my favorite things from Keats are his his longer poems and that Hyperion Unfinished thing, which is just a total mythological poem, is wonderful. Is that um, even in here? But I like Endymion too. Yeah, we well, which is also a long one, but this is a nice. That? Yeah, this is a nice excerpt from it. Yeah. This is from the hymn to Pan part of it. <laughs> o thou whose mighty palace roof doth hang from jagged trunks and overshadoweth eternal whispers, glooms, the birth, life, death of unseen flowers and heavy peacefulness, who loves to see the hemidryads dress, their ruffled locks where meeting hazels darken, and through whole solemn hours doth sit and hearken the dreary melody of bedded reeds in desolate places where dank moisture breeds the pipey hemlock to strange overgrowth. Bethinking thee how melancholy loth thou wast to lose fair syrinx. Do thou now by thy love's milky brow, by all the trembling mazes that she ran, hear us, great pan? O thou, for whose soul-soothing quiet turtles passion their voices, cooingly among myrtles, what time thou wanderest at eventide, through sunny meadows that outskirt the side of thine amossed realms, O thou, to whom broad-leaved fig trees even now foredoom their ripened fruitage, yellow-girded bees their golden honeycombs, our village lees their fairest blossom beans and poppied corn, the chuckling linnet its five young unborn to sing for thee, low creeping strawberries, their summer coolness, pent up butterflies, their freckled wings, yea, the fresh budding year at its completion be nick quickly near. By every wind that nods the mountain pine, O forester divine, thou to whom every fawn and satyr flies for willing service, whether to surprise the squatted hare while in half-sleeping fit, or upward ragged precipices flit, to save poor lambkins from the eagle's maw, or by mysterious enticement draw bewildered shepherds to their path again, or to tread breathless round the frothy mane and gather up all fancifulest shells, for thee to tumble into naiad cells, and being hidden laugh at their outpeeping, or to delight thee with fantastic leaping, the while they pelt each other on the crown with silvery oak apples and fir cones brown, by all the echoes that about thee ring, hear us, O satyr king, O hearkener to the loud clapping shears, while ever and anon to his shorn peers a ram goes bleeding, winder of the horn, when snouted wild boars routing tender corn anger our huntsmen, breather round our farms, to keep off mildews and all weather harms, strange mistreant of unscribed sounds, that comes a-swooning over hollow grounds, and wither drearily on barren moors, dread opener of the mysterious doors leading to universal knowledge, see, great son of Dryope, the many that are come to pay their vows with leaves about their brows, be still the unimaginable lodge for solitary thinking such as dodge, conception to the very bounce of heaven. Then leave the naked brain, be still the leaven, that spreading in this dull and clotted earth, give it a touch ethereal, a new birth, 
be still a symbol of immensity, a firmament reflected in a sea, an element filling the space between an unknown but no more. We humbly screen with uplift hands our foreheads lowly bending, and giving out a shout most heaven-rending, conjure thee to receive our humble paean upon thee, Mount Lasan. <laughs> wow. And that's an excerpt. That's one of those really long... I mean, Keats loved his classical references and those long poems. But it's also like thinking about that one, Endymion, right? Yeah. Beautiful myth. Weird myth. But like a lot of these are like what what I think is appealing to them too as as poetry subjects is there are these kind of open canvases to like reimag to have this constraint of this existing story, but they're very open stories, so you can reimagine them in the way you want to, right? And we think about like all our Mardi Gras parades are, are reimaginings of, of classical yeah. myth, and it's the same kind of thing that like Keats is doing in these poems, right? I don't think very many people, uh, as a side note, I don't think very many people necessarily like take all that in, you know, even though that they're like these carnival parades and stuff, these like floats and, and names of these crews and things, you know. I know that it's all there, it's all sort of on the nose, but I don't, it's really interesting to me, like we live in such a city, but. I wonder how many people can just like tell the the myth of Endymion or like tell the well, myth of. I wonder, yeah. I mean, and I, I mean, Endymion's in a more obscure one, and I certainly think even people who are a little more knowledgeable might not necessarily. About the uh, crew of Hypernion. Yeah, there is a Hyperion, right? I, I think don't know. Hyperion, is there? I think there was one at one point. There was time. one. I think there absolutely was. But you get ones that are bigger, right? I mean, certainly people know. Orpheus. Orpheus, or people know. Bacchus. Bacchus, yeah. But, but yeah, but, but it's the same thing. Like, it's, it's the same thing as what I think Keats is doing here, right? I don't know that everyone who read Keats knew the myths necessarily, but it might have made them go search out what the myths were and maybe go read some Ovid or something. Certainly. Um, but also, I think the poem is still enjoyable without understanding the references. Just like I think our Mardi Gras parades, it maybe less so now than it used to, but, but when those crews began, those were sort of just an inspiration for the imagery of the parades, right? And you didn't need to understand what all the imagery was a reference to. No. To enjoy it, right? Not really. I mean, it's pretty on the nose, some of it. And Timian is weird, though, right? Isn't it Diana who falls in love with him? Which is weird, isn't she? So. A yeah. virgin goddess, but she falls in love with Endymion and puts him to sleep eternally so she can see him every night as the moon <laughs> as she passes over. Wow. He's a shepherd. He's a beautiful young shepherd. But I also always think there's something very, like, in Keats in general, and I think maybe that's why he picked Endymion as a topic. He has this very, I mean, I'm not trying to suggest something absurd like Keats was secretly gay or something, but he has this very, he's very attuned to male beauty all the time and has this thing that comes up, I think, frequently in his poetry. So it's not surprising to me that Endymion was a topic that appealed to him. Yeah. But yeah, I think as far as like, is that use of classical reference and, and how that comes to be 
Do we want to proceed uh, chronologically, or do we want to jump around a little? We could do anything. Because I'm thinking that what... But another thing is, a lot of these things, I think, for writers, appeal to writers because of their... appeal to musicality or something like we had the pan thing there and you've got the whole myth of syrinx and how the the flute is invented and all of that yeah and then i was looking through which was not what i was thinking but i was trying to think of how illusions changed later on but i was looking through frank o'hara and he has this poem that does a very similar thing that maybe you could read for us it also has pan in it where ode on saint cecilia's day where it's drawing on double musical myths of Pan and then, you know, the the myth of Saint Cecilia. I mean yeah. not myth. I mean I guess it's 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 a Catholic myth as far as a saint goes, or a Christian myth became a Catholic myth. Uh Saint Cecilia who was supposedly Isn't isn't the deal with Saint Cecilia that she was going to be executed for Christianity in the uh, arena, okay. but she played. Oh, now I'm now I'm blanking on it. There's a musical reference there. She's, she was the she was the patron saint of musicians and artists. Yeah, but there's a, the story relates to that. There's a church in the Bywater, right, Saint Cecilia's. Yeah. So we've got the double musical myth, but I'm trying to remember exactly. What the deal is with Saint Cecilia? Oh, she sang as she was about to be executed. Was the idea? She was martyred, right? She was executed for being a Christian. The music part's kind of abstract because there's nothing really in her story that has that much to do with music, but because she invoked the saints and the angels and she heard them singing all the time, it was like she was the patron of music early on. There's not really a direct connection in her story with that, but I think we've got the double. We've got the double music thing there. Um, Ode on Saint Cecilia's Day. This is Frank O'Hara. One. Pan seeds the reeds, and bound them quickly. Ah, they'd escape into the silent lake, and he'd be left in idleness and lust to polish the horns of his forehead. He wept as he worked, afraid that desire again might wither and the music fail. The beauty might flee his new assault in the mirror or in the trees. Two, laying his hollow mouth upon the open reeds, Pan saw another love that memory never captured or kills. A final abstraction engaging pursuit in its delight the piano had not yet been invented. No one had ever stood with violin raised to kiss a madly erotic maiden. Pan's melody was his handiwork. 3. All of us who play at music fill our empty hearts and slump beside an indifferent pool in the passionless gloaming, hearing in the pure geometry of tones whatever complicated commentaries we wish. Our motives not despicable. In play... We separate desire from the mirage of sentiment and ideal choice. 4. Those who are not very fond of the tangible evidences of love shun music and are quiet. 
doctored by memory and the martyrdom of St. Cecilia, the, the rest of us play and are played, seeing like Pan the pattern of our true desires, willing to follow motive anywhere, to the tempo of failure and crime. I wonder, can a virgin make music? 4. For this is necessary. Memory is the soundless ruin, a habit of mourning that builds no bridge or hands. It sighs a harp no love can search. Memory is without symmetry, supine and bad. Even with sandwiches and a pocket flask, we die among its black houses. My dear, seek things seriously on your flute. I want you tomorrow. Five. Sorry, this is six. Here on the phonograph and in the hall of mountainous heroes, Schoenberg praises our beauty and the difficulty of our best chances. He sings of Cleopatra, not of you, poor Cecilia, who knew not even the fragile dreams of Melisande's faith. Mean pathos, his voice is too great, too great it would burst your prudent heart. 7. Impoverished Cecilia, flowering sent from heaven mean nothing, then should have been carelessly picked and strewn about your head and thighs, and I don't like your instrument. It embarrasses Pan and all lovers with its machinery. Music is incidental to your virgin contraption, proud girl. Ah, Cecilia, you did not love us. 8. Beautiful girl, had you been more the prodigal, less the saint, intimate music would have called you close at hand. No monster chewing fingers and belching into bottles at an intellectual remove would have revealed your virtue's artifice. Thee, Cecilia, your instrument, will never lead us into in, in war or love. Today we hallow other songs. I like that. So I like A that lot, because... Yeah. Actually, what that's saying, I could have read it better, but look, it's pretty good. I like it. It's, but what it's saying, actually, it's sort of an interesting poem to, to uh, talk about on this in this episode because this is actually addressing the very issue and crux of like what we're getting. I think what we are talking about in this in the episode is that his message here is to Cecilia, that's saying that like she's faded from pop culture, like. She's faded from... No, it's true. Yeah, that kind of is like... That she's faded from... And and we get allusions to musicians. We get Schoenberg alluded that he's singing about... He's writing about Cleopatra, not singing instead of of Cecilia. He's like, well, Cleopatra's in style now, you know? And that's funny because that is kind of how, like... You know know how, like, literature ebbs and flows, too? There's, like, a tide of literature where, like, it ebbs and flows, you know? Where, like... Where like we have like absolutely yeah. where we have like people get really interested in one thing again, you know, and then they get really interested in another thing, and then there's like an, a huge wave of like people are really interested in Emily Dickinson again, or like people are really interested in, in Whitman again, or like oh wow, we're like taking a look back, like now it's a time where like we're looking back to like new origins, like the real origins that people are you know discussing now about like these like important women who you know. R- like it's like right now it's like okay it's a look back at like like people of different races and women and people who like have have who were like some of these like early pioneers of things but like have never been praised before like right now there's a specific look back at that and i think that that's good 
Because I think like we're looking back. But at, it's like, also like this, yeah. But it's also like the same thing of like reimagining. I call that surplus futures. Yeah. Like in the past, there's so many things that you can be bringing back into the future again. You know. Oh, but the reference in the he referenced something that is not from her life in the in the poem. What's that? Which is probably important. So there is this kind of like later tradition that Saint Cecilia invented the organ. What? But it's really because people didn't understand Latin. Because <laughs> there's this part, there's this passage that says, Con- "Cantantibus organis in corde sua soli domino de cantabat," and people didn't understand uh, that organum means the organ of speech and singing, and of course, right. cantabus is singing, and that's what it was talking about, and they thought. It was referencing the instrument and organ because they didn't know any better. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> so he would, but but that is like part of the popular tradition, right? But that's something that comes up with these things too. Is like that's that's part of what's interesting about classical myth that maybe continued a little bit with religious myth, but not totally. Uh, it's 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 intermixed, right? Now no, I think but, people but, I mean, you know people's saying? minds are open. You know okay. what I'm saying? It is. Okay. Like, the whole thing with... We think about classical myth. There's not one definitive version of the story, right? People retold these stories over and over again in, in different ways, and different things happened in the different stories, right? Mm-hmm. And that's part of what's beautiful and wonderful about it and why people come back to them, where in religion kind of ended that at a certain point. I mean, I think earlier religions allowed that to happen, right? I mean, that's what mythology is. But, like... Christianity didn't really wanted to solidify something into a correct version and didn't let you keep retelling stories. Although that's really the interesting part of religion and mythology is to be able to keep retelling stories and adding them and changing them and using that fountain of imagery, but but changing it every time. Yeah, I guess what we're I guess what we're in, the one thing that we're not even bringing up, which is like the big one, is like we just glossed over, but it's cool. I mean. You know, but we've got like Chaucer and we've got like fucking Shakespeare. You know? Chaucer, one of Chaucer's um, Canterbury Tales is about Saint Cecilia, I believe. Yeah, I thought yeah, so. Yeah, right? yeah, there, yeah, there's yeah, something yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, but, I think he has one that's on. I can't remember which one, but one of those is about Saint Cecilia, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, but that's the thing. Like, I mean, I think earlier in Christianity there was a little leeway for that, but then it just kind of clamped down and was like, nope, we need a correct story. We need a yeah, a literal story, so we can't. Which kind of kills a religion. The whole beautiful part of it is retelling things and 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 allowing for variation. But that's maybe why classical mythology remained appealing. Well, who did? Who, you yeah, could, and who did that? Right, that things. was like that was like Saul. That was like Paul, right? Who like basically like did. You know, didn't Paul, wasn't Paul like the architect of the New Testament? Well, no, I mean, probably not. A lot of it. Some people say that, but I, I think that's inaccurate. But Really? Um, <laughs> but he wrote a lot of it. Well, he wrote his things that he wrote. No, he didn't write, I mean, not, not any of the Gospels or anything. No, but, um, but all the other stuff. Well, the Gospels are the majority of the New Testament. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I mean, he wrote... Well, and and uh, the idea of him writing... Uh, revelations is yeah spurious, of course. Oh yeah, that's yeah. not that's not correct. But well, and then so I didn't even know this poem, 
by Emily Dickinson, or I don't remember it, but I was oh, looking, yeah, let's I go. was trying to see like references, but kind of going directly into that, I was like, Emily Dickinson never makes any classical references, right? And then I turned to this classical illusions, and of course not. But then I turned to this poem, and sure enough, not only this, it's exactly what we're talking about. She's complaining about the Bible and ends on a classical reference. So this is 1577, number 1577. The Bible is an antique volume written by faded men at the suggestion of holy specters Subjects, Bethlehem, Eden, the ancient homestead, Satan, the brigadier, Judas, the great defaulter, David, the troubadour, sin, a distinguished precipice. Others must resist. Boys that believe are very lonesome. Other boys are lost. Had but the tale a warbling teller, all the boys would come. Orpheus's sermon captivated, it did not condemn. kind of encapsulates like why classical illusions are maybe more appealing than yeah Christian illusions. Although, I mean, to be fair, there are some pretty wonderful illusions of Christian illusions to biblical things, but it has to almost be done by people who are more irreverent about it or yeah. even in even older things where they're like I'm not being literal about this. I'm going to make biblical illusions, but have fun and play around with it like people did with classical myths, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, because, yeah, okay, so yeah, so Dickinson here is very on what she's, like, pretty on point. Yeah, well, and she's right. That's what it's about, right? Like, if it's too preachy, right? Like, if it's, if, if you are, you know... What number is this? 1577. Yeah, she says, if, uh... Had but the tale a warbling teller, the bo- all the boys would come. Right? You know, like, it needs to be interesting, right? Like, that's the idea, instead of, like, which is really the idea of all writing. Like, anytime you're bending your writing to some ideology, it's going to be shit, right? It's not about that. It's about being... About following where it goes in some way, but I mean, she says captivate, and maybe that's fine, whatever captivate means, but what is going to captivate someone? Not a simplistic ideological bullshit. It's got to be interesting. Well, yeah, it's got to be interesting, but what makes something interesting? It's about it being complex and about it being, yeah, probably following some flights of fancy or following some interweaving the personal and the universal and the heart-wrenching and all of those things, you know? Like the Bible does with, like, the will of God and war and, you know, like... Well, the Bible do this in can my name. do that sometimes, you know, but it's like... But, but the way that it was, like, ended up being used even by... Even by Emily Dickinson's time as a bit of a bludgeon to just be like, you need to do these things. That's not interesting anymore. I mean, it's not that Christianity doesn't have interesting mythology. It certainly does. But you almost have to deal, you almost have to like dig into the earlier Christianity for it to be interesting because it got 
a lot of that got bled out of it, right? It was like, oh no, we can't do that anymore. I mean, Catholicism held on to some of it for a little while. It still had some fun. And that's why the saints are interesting, because that was a little more allowable. It's not scripture, so you can play around with those life stories a little yeah. bit, right? You know? That is interesting, talking about the saints. The saints, yeah, as these sort of like lower deities, because it's almost like, well, you know, like the Greek and Roman, Roman, it's just like, again, it's just like the Greek and Roman had its whole little under deities, so we yeah. have to have ours too. But, 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 the, but the, the, the Greeks and Romans, you could make up new things about even the major gods all the time, which that's where Christianity didn't allow, but yeah. it still allowed that with saints, right? And it didn't allow that with. At a certain point. It was like, this is canon, this is not canon, and if you say that shit, you're a heretic, heretic, and we're going to persecute Well, because there's like all this apocrypha, right? Yeah. All these books that were like left well, yeah. out. I mean, like, early Christianity is much more interesting when you read about that. Unfortunately, we lost a lot of it. That's actually... There's a very strong suggestion in some of those texts, which is actually fascinating... That, that early Christianity believed in reincarnation. Wow. I don't know if you're aware of that, but that's like at least a major portion of it. That that really their whole their idea of resurrection originally was not so much an afterlife resurrection. I mean, afterlife in the sense of it was more like which makes sense because they were relying on a lot of the Greek kind of ideas of those things. It was more like platonic reincarnation hmm. right this idea of that was your but the church did a pretty good job of purging a lot of that but there's still some traces it's interesting i mean i don't know it's it's an interesting kind of thing there's wow. something there that, that that was probably part of early christianity was this idea of reincarnation that's really interesting which makes sense if that's what jesus did right he reincarnated he came back yeah Right, so, but that's a sidetrack. But that's all right. It's an interesting sidetrack. But yeah, so illusions and like how those things work. Okay, but what about? But then I feel like we get into periods where all right, when are like periods where illusions are almost anathema and people are not? Can we think of like literary movements that mostly avoided illusions? Or <laughs> I mean, if I you're talking about yourself. Yeah. Then you're not really like talking about yourself. You avoid illusions. You think? <laughs> I don't know. We can. Yeah. I don't know. Do you? I don't know. No, that's fine. I'd be interesting. <laughs> Do you have illusions in your poetry? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe not. Not really. I think I have a tons of illusions in my poetry, but they're not always so obvious. And maybe that's like a different thing. It's not so like. I don't think I have any plums on the nose. Where like the title of it is like a, an illusion necessarily. But, like, I think of, like, I don't think of, like, that kind of illusion. Like, I don't think of, like, literary illusions. I don't think of, like, imagists being super into illusions. Like, I don't think of a lot of... They, they might occur, I guess, in passing. But, like, I don't think of William Carlos Williams making a lot of allusions to things. Not necessarily, no, no. Maybe, maybe current things, but not, like, historical illusions, right? But that was the shift, and wasn't that, like, a shift, though, from, like, the neoclassical period of the 
the Belle Epoque and then into the modern era where like there was like almost like more of a reach toward a different type of poetry. Yeah, but it's always like this kind of philosophical stance, but there's lots of ways to take that stance, right? And you can make allusions to things that are current instead of things that are that not, happens not to, current, right? Doesn't that happen all the time in people's poetry? And that's a whole nother interesting, you. interesting thing. It can date you. and like, Well, it's funny because you brought that up, and that's what I was thinking about today because I was grading creative writing portfolios. And one of the things that I asked them to do is to look at... I actually stole this from Vonnegut. But he used to do this with his creative writing students. One of the things I have them do in their portfolio is... Pretend that you're a junior editor at a magazine. Pick three things we read this semester that you would recommend to be published in the magazine or the anthology and pick three things that you didn't like. That's interesting. And don't want to be in and explain to the head editor why you made that decision, you know, uh, why you think these should be included and these should not, and, you know, make references, specific references to the thing, and, you know, do it as, you know, you don't need to, it's not a literary criticism, but, like, what what works about it or what doesn't, and be specific about it. Um, and some always do better than it, with it than others, but it's funny, speaking of Frank O'Hare again, one of the ones today I was reading, they were complaining about the day Lady died. They were complaining about it? Yeah. Really? And it was basically, although they didn't use that terminology, about illusions. And that they thought it was difficult to read. Because they didn't have the reference point? Because of the illusions, right? And they didn't... I mean, and when we read it in class, I explained, I mean... And I do think that's maybe a difficult thing, right? At the time that he wrote it, people knew he was talking about Billie Holiday immediately. But I don't think now, necessarily, if someone picked that poem up, they would even know Lady was a reference to, to Billie Holiday, right? Yeah. Um, and then there's so many other allusions in the poem. Yeah. But... I also think it's a bit of a, a mistake, and that's maybe like I, I kind of like that about using illusions in poetry when you do it well, is that it, it calls out problems in the way people read. Because uh, I we talked also, about we talked about this with Keats, and then I think it's the same thing with the day lady died. I don't think the illusions are that important to the poem. I think you could get none of them, and if you were being an attentive reader still appreciate the poem, right? Still pick something up. Like, I don't know. And I think, I mean, Frank O'Hara is probably, like, key with that, right? But, I mean, all the all the New York school poets and all the beat poets, for that matter, used allusions in that way, too, where some of the allusions were things that were pop culture or were things that were literature that you, sh you could know and would add to the poem if you knew. But then some things were allusions that you couldn't possibly know that were things about their friends or things about their favorite, you know, joint on the corner. Yeah, but that's like the good poetry, right? Is how you can mix it all together. Yeah, but that's like a, but that's like the thing they realized. It's the same thing Keats was doing in the Keats poem we read, right? He was not very concerned if you knew that mythology. 
the poem was still good whether you did or not. And that's what they realized. And they're like, we can do this with the things in our lives as well. Like, we can make allusions to things that no one could possibly get unless they were in our circle of friends. Yeah. And that's okay. How about that? How about that one over there? Oh, so yeah, like, uh, speaking of beat poets doing that, Gregory Corso, man. Bomb. Yeah. I know, right? So this is like one of my just favorite. Filled with illusions, this is right? Like, well, I mean, this thing is super long, and I don't know it if I'm going to read the long. whole thing, but and shaped like an atomic shaped bomb. like an atomic bomb. <laughs> if you've never caught this, we could try to take a picture of this and put it on put it on the show notes. But it is cool. It is like this broadside that folds out of the center of "Happy Birthday of Death" by Gregory Corso. Let me see if I can just dig into a little bit of this. And again, you know, just filled with illusions, like all over the place, but you know. Burger of bomb, budger of history, break of time, you bomb, toy of universe, grandest of all, snatched sky, I cannot hate you. Do I hate the mischievous thunderbolt, the jawbone of an ass, the bumpy club of one billion BC, the mace, the flail, the axe, catapult, da Vinci, tomahawk, cochise, flintlock kid, dagger, rathbone, ah, and the sad, desperate gun of Verlaine, Pushkin, Dillinger, Bogart, and hath not St. Michael a burning sword, St. George a lance, David a sling. Bomb, you are cruel as man makes you, you, and you are no crueler than cancer. All man hates you. They'd rather die by car crash, lightning, drowning, falling off a roof, electric chair, heart attack, old age, old age, oh, bomb. They'd rather die by anything but you. Death's finger is freelance, not up to man whether you boom or not. Death has no long since distributed its categorical blue. I sing thee, bomb, death's extravagance, death's jubilee, gem of death, supremest blue. The flyer will crash, Will death will differ with the climber who will fall. To die by cobra is not to die by bad pork. Some die by swamp, some by sea. And some by the bushy-haired man in the night. Oh, there are deaths like witches of Ark. Scary deaths like Boris Karloff. No feeling deaths like bird death. Sadless deaths like old Payne Bowery. Abandoned deaths like capital punishment. Stately deaths like senators. And unthinkable deaths like Harpo Marx. Girls on Vogue covers. My own, I do not know just how horrible Bohemoth bomb heat bomb death is i can only imagine yet no fear other death i know has no laughable a, a preview i scope a city new york streaming start subway shelter score and scores a fumble of humanity high heels bend hats whelming away youth forgetting their combs ladies not knowing what to do with their shopping bags unperturbed gum machines Yet dangerous third rail, Ritz brothers from the Bronx, caught in an A-train, the smiling Schnelli poster will always smile, impish death, sadder bomb, bomb death, turtles exploding over Istanbul, the jaguars flying foot, soon to sink in Arctic snow, penguins plunge against the Sphinx, the top of the Empire State, arrowed in broccoli field in Sicily, Eiffel shaped like a sea in Magnolia Gardens, Saint Sophia, Peeling over Sudan, O oh, athletic death, supportive bomb, the temple of ancient times, their grand run, ruins ceased, electrons, protons, neutrons, 
gathering Hesperian hair, walking the dolorous gulf of Acadie, joining marble helmsmen, entering the final amphitheater, myth of Himamdi, feeling all the Troys heralding Cypressian torches, racing plumes and banners, and yet knowing Homer with a step of grace, lo, the visiting team of past, present, the home team of past, Lyre and Tuba, together join Hark the hot dog, soda, olive, grape, galaxy, gala, robbed, and uninformed commissary. Oh, the happy stands, ethereal root and chair and boo and billion all-time attendants, the Zeusium, pandemonium, Hermes racing, Owens, the spitball of Buddha, Christ striking out, Luther sealing third, planetarium death, Hosanna bomb, gush the final, rose, O spring bomb, come with thy gown of dynamite green, unimmense nature, inviolate eye, before the wimpled past, before you, the hallucinating future, O bomb, bound in grassy clarion air, like the fox, O tally-ho, by the field, the universe, thy hedge, the geo-leap bomb, bomb-bomb, frolic zigzag, the stars, a swarm of bees in thy binging bag, stick angles on your jubilee feet, wheels of rain-light on your bunky seat, you are due and behold you are due, the heavens are with you, Hosanna, incalescent, glorious, liaison, bomb, O oh, havoc, antiphony, molten, cleft, boom, bomb, mark, infinity, a stance, furnace, spread by multitudinous, encompassed, sweep, set forth, awful agenda, carrion, stars, shrapnel, planets, carcass, elements, corpse, and universe, tee-hee, finger in the mouth, hop, over its long, long dead nor, from thy thimbled, matted, spastic eye, exhaust, deluge of Cecile ghouls, from the appellational womb, spew, birth, gusts of great worms, worms, rip open your belly, bomb, from the belly, outflock, virtually, simulations, battle forth your spangled hyena fingers, stump <laughs> along the brink of paradise, and that's just half of that's it. That's about half of it. Holy that's, shit. That is a monster poem. You know, it's just wonderful. And then when you talk about illusions, he's covering like every kind of illusions. There were, there were Christian illusions in there. There were classical illusions in there. There are things historical and specific to the time. There's pop culture illusions, but he had Harper Marx in there. You know, like every illusion you can think of. But that's also an interesting one to me. Does that feel dated in any way? To me, not it doesn't. really. Not really. And like that's kind of the trick, right? Why does it not feel dated? Because he uses everything. Because he, he kind of uses everything. He uses everything. This is the sound, man. The sound is just. I don't. I mean, it wouldn't matter if I didn't get something in that because the sound's beautiful and it moves from one thing to another and there's enough other things that you can understand without catching the illusion. And I think that's the trick if you're using illusions well, that the illusions are ornaments. They're not like... They might, it might be more interesting if you get them, but you don't need them, right? Like they just, they just move on and you can appreciate it without that there's st it's still a wonderful poem even if you don't understand what's happening with it everything you know yeah but it's, it is interesting too though like what? but 
But when you do get them, it maybe adds some depth to things. And it's part of like having the shared culture, which is something we're losing, I guess. But maybe it'll come back again. I feel like you know? people make make do it. I mean, I think there's a lot of it still. But I think what happens is, you know, we have such a splintered culture where there's, you know, there's stuff that's popular, I guess, pop culture. And that, that goes more mainstream. And I think there are people doing that type of work um, that are reading, that are doing some interesting things. Um, and I mean, I think it's happening a lot. I think there's a lot, a lot of references. You know, we have our friends at Post Reading the News, which is doing a little thing, a little bit of the different thing, but it's still reaction to pop culture. So I think that that's an interesting, um, illusion in and of itself, but it's not necessarily illusion so much as it's, you know, um, sort of derivative work, I suppose. But yeah. And I mean, it just depends, right? Like, but I think that's fine, but I mean, if you make your poem work both ways, it's okay, right? You know, and I don't know. And I think poets reading the news, I don't know. Like, I think that's an, in, I like that project and it's wonderful. Some of those poems probably don't work both ways, but that was, that's a, that's fine. They're just ephemeral then. And it's okay to have ephemeral poems too. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But, but I think if you're trying to look, you can make illusions in a way that it's okay, right? It's okay either way. Like it can be more meaningful now, but it's okay later on. Someone can still understand it too, you know? What you think? Fuck it. So it made me, so like that thing kind of makes me think of, this Dean Young poem that I really like. Called The Velvet Underground. And it's certainly helpful with this poem to kind of understand, to know about the band The Velvet Underground and understand their kind of place and culture and their weird, like, I guess they're more popular now than when this poem was written. But this kind of their weird place in music history of being super influential, but also forgotten in some way at the same time. But I don't know that you would need that to understand the poem, right? As far as like a pop culture reference, but it's a good poem. The Velvet Underground. Everyone sitting around Nick and Kenny says. The Velvet Underground was the first, and then everyone realizes Dan's not there, because he would say, no, so-and-so was the first, someone no one's heard of. Expect periods of rain becoming breezy. Maybe he's found a girl. She backed her tornado into his wind chime, raspberry sherbet. How long's it been since anyone's seen him? No one can precisely recall. Yet Dan is still quite exact, like the first time a shrimp is brought to you on a plate with its head still attached, his equipage unslurred in the holy mud. Of all the speakers of French among us, Dan sounds the most alert whenever he's saying, The young lady's undergarments rude with tragic surmise, or please, porter, avant! It always sounds convincing, a recipe for croutons, Still, there's also a sense of openness, uncertainty, as when one carries a cup too full of something hot or makes eye contact with a zood lioness or finds a 20 in an old pocket. 
that sound during one song turns out to be the guy playing viola scraping a metal chair. Gee, I hope he doesn't have his head in an oven, says Aaron. On a timeline in which a year is a foot, Dan and Aaron's coupledom would be a quarter inch long but 10,000 miles high. She doesn't know 10 years ago Dan was so wrecked over a librarian his head in fact was put in an oven, only to realize it was an electric oven, thereby beginning the life of the next Dan, the one everyone knows for his argumentative sense of the absurd, who no one can imagine with his head in the oven except Kenny, who can imagine anyone thus. Job liability, and jumping off a bridge, and opening a wrist in a warm tub listening to chamber music. Are his parents still alive? Doesn't he know someone who owns property in the mountains? Maybe I should call, says Kenny, unmoving. The theory of cloud formation, theory of mimetic desire, market transfer. Is he writing a book? Everyone's writing a book. Barometric pressure, pre-war shortages, blouse breezes of whiskeyed spring. Nothing holds us for long. So many friends, yet one remains unknown. Yeah, that's good. But it's more like the illusion is setting a scene in some way. And that idea, right? Like you kind of have that kind of feeling of, that's a conversation you have. Like, oh yeah, the Velvet Underground did it first, right? Which changes how you read that scene if you've had that conversation. But it's not necessary to understanding the poem, right? I like it because it, it reminds us that like we don't really know we don't really know. We, I don't know. I think about like how people use pop culture in like social settings these days. You know. What did you see? Which is a total <laughs> non-poetry sidetrack. But you saw people the, always do this did stuff. You like, see oh, the, they did it first. Did you see, see did the? This uh, or did that? you see the Weezer sketch on on Saturday Night Live this I, past time? I, I didn't. I know. I know our friend. I know our friend in previous <laughs> podcast co co uh, co uh, uh, guest. Um, it's kind of loved it's it. kind of it's kind of good. I mean, I don't know how funny it is. I mean, it's kind of funny if you've had that conversation. It's the opposite of this because it doesn't hold out without the illusion. But if you've had that experience, it kind of is. But it's kind of the same thing, except maybe not. You could transpose that experience with someone other than Weezer. People just having this argument over this silly, arbitrary thing to some extent, right? But that you're very passionate about, and maybe that's the thing about illusions, right? We're passionate about things that are not important, right? Of course. And I, well, I always think like when know? people when people talk about like um, when people get really caught up in um, in like a television show, <laughs> they get like really caught up in a television show, and it's like all they do is like eat and breathe and think and drink and and, and like everything they have and live is all about a TV show. Makes me think they have a mental problem. Well, but I don't know that that's the right response to that because, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's fucking annoying, and I mean, you can find some better, maybe. I'm but, sorry, but it's but probably, I mean, it's there's not nice there's, of me to say. there's probably plenty of people can who you are edit like, that out. There's probably yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm leaving it, but it's like there's probably plenty of people who are like, "What the fuck are y'all doing talking about poetry every week?" True, yeah, we're the ones, you know, and it's mad. like, and but I'll that's part of. I mean, but none of it's mad, really. I mean, you you choose your things that you're enamored with but that's part of the human experience is that that's wonderful actually when you really think about it right if all we were concerned about is the most important things we'd just be grubbing to get food every day and not fucking die that's really the only important things right if you really wanted to be practical about it 
right? But practical is boring and uninteresting and our brains need more than what's just practical, right? Like our brains and our hearts and our souls need something more than just what's practical, right? Uh, so, I mean, and maybe that's the beautiful thing about illusions, but it's also like, maybe it's a side effect of our, the rest of how we are as humans to some extent, but that's okay. And then man, as, as an artist, as a, whether you're a writer or whether you're a visual artist or whether you're, if you're not taking advantage of that aspect of humanity, you're missing out in some ways, right? If you're not making illusions, if you're not latching on to this core thing of being human that we do get fascinated with things that are maybe not important in on some level right that we get fascinated with things that are just i mean all of its stories all of its things like you know in a certain sense that you're hitting on you're hitting on something big that's like it's almost all illusions now like that's that's what I was getting to. The Language meme, the, is an illusion. Right? Well, that's what I was getting Dang, to. The meme thing earlier. Well, that's what I was getting to with the meme thing earlier. You know, because it's all like it's all like on a regular basis. Like our news cycle is like, oh, did you see the SNL or oh, did you see this or did you see this? Or, oh, did you hear? Did you see the? Did you see the new? You know, did you see the new this video or did you see the new that video or did you? Oh, did you see this new thing or that new thing? It's all like illusion, right? Yeah, but yeah, and and I and I understand you're like you were reacting to it as like sort of a negative thing, but 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 then you think about it like that's always been part of humanity, right? Like you you can read like ancient texts and be like, did you hear about this new play, or did you hear about like they were they were yeah jibber jabbing about pop culture back two thousand yeah. years ago. I mean that's just part of being human, right? I think. And I mean, all right, we can maybe like quibble about whether something is quality enough to be worth that attention, but it also almost doesn't matter, right? Like that's what happens. And that's, and that's maybe what making allusions to things is pretty fundamental to human experience, I think, really. I mean, if you really want to get into the nuance of like the micro, the micro focus of it all, then, then yeah, then it's all, then everything's an illusion. Well, yeah, I mean, we could get into that. I well, mean, the story, is... the, the story, and you're, I guess what you're getting at is like, you're getting at like the storytelling aspect of it and the way that language is passed between down, yeah, down through the ages. Language is also, in a, and all of language is alluding to something else. When you speak about something, you're alluding to the signified thing, right? You're not. Uh, yeah. But no, but yeah, but I mean, maybe that's being too granular. But 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 even beyond that, I mean, just alluding to things like part of that is a social thing too. Of like, that's how you create groups, and that's how you like, you know, like. Well, now it's like now it's all like so like eating itself because it's like you know there's like a facebook group where you can just exist within one little circle of illusion certainly and i mean yeah you can take things to an extreme where i think it's probably unhelpful a lot of people do but but i think overall maybe we're taking this to an extreme illusions are probably you know they're they're something you need to explore in in creative aspects right I think, to me, when I think about illusions in creative work, whether I'm talking about writing or art, to me, like a lot of things, it's about subtlety. Are you alluding to things in a subtle way? Are you alluding to things in an obvious way? And that makes the difference of whether it's effective or not. And there's a thousand ways to do it subtly 
But if you're not doing it subtly, it's not so effective for me, right? Like it almost has to be subtle. It does, because if you yeah, you run the risk of 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 just knocking someone over the head with sort of like an illusion. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna knock you over the head with an illusion. <laughs> it still sounds like you're saying, uh, illusion, illusion, El- illusion. Yeah, El- someone illusion. come out with a poetry book called "Use Your Illusion to." <laughs> <laughs> There's not going to be a one. Just, yeah, you, you, user, use your illusion. Could it be? But it could be. Could it be user illusion? Illusion? L l u s i o n. Like user user illusion. And it's great because the title is an illusion. <laughs> it's better than the original. Should it be this? User. Talk about something eating itself. Yeah, user evolution too. <laughs> or should it be? Should it be T O O? I don't know. Someone is gonna take that idea. I think it's a good title for something. User user illusion. <laughs> and it's all. Poet. It's all poems with subtle Guns N' Roses, Guns N' Roses illusions in them. <laughs> that That is like a book. Someone would immediately publish that. It could be terrible. <laughs> if you just wrote a bunch of poems with Guns N' Roses references and called it Use Your Allusion 2, any, any poetry publisher would immediately pick that up and publish it. You think call it, call it Use Your or Use User? I don't know. It depends on how uh, subtle you want to be. <laughs> I might put it out as like a dual chapbook set. <laughs> That's now the title of this episode. Use your illusion. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you next week. <laughs> Alright. See you all next week. <laughs>
Thank you.